But we're going to talk about money. And I know you get really excited when, you talk, when the church talks about money, don't you? Who, who, who's just so excited that the church is going to start talking about money? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I am um, thrilled to take on this content for you. I want to give you my resume uh, because I want you to hear why I'm doing this series. It's because my heart is for you. My heart is um, really torn up about what has happened to you, uh, to everybody watching for the last two and a half years. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But I am a success story uh, in the financial world. I don't like to brag about myself, but I will in this case only because of this. I don't deserve what I've got. I'm telling you that I am not smart enough. I'm not talented enough. I'm not handsome enough. Well, maybe I am handsome. Just joking. To have as much as I have. Every day I'll wake up and I say, God, you are too good to me. And I, I thank God for the family that he gave me. He gave me a, a, a wise mother and father. My father was the treasurer for our church when I was growing up. I used to watch him write the checks and watch him do the ledger. And, and then I'd watch him reconcile the checkbook. How many of you know what that means, reconcile the checkbook? Like somebody like, does that mean my checkbook gets saved? <laughs> uh, it could. <laughs> and I still do that to this day. Uh, every family has somebody that runs the finances. I run the finances. My wife and I started out in ministry making $30,000 a year. We had two kids and a, and a mortgage. And I was doing youth ministry and launching this church up here in North Attleboro at the same time. And uh, my wife was uh, pregnant for our second child at the time. And we were, we were just starting out in life. And every penny mattered. Anybody ever been there? Maybe you are there. Where you just, every penny mattered. And I'd, I would not for anything want to go back to those days. But I thank God for them. Because it taught me the value of money management. It is something that has been lost in our culture. And it has been lost in our culture uh, in, in large part not because of you. Uh, I, I can't blame you. I, can't, I mean, some of you, it is your fault. And I, and I hope that as we do these next five weeks together, and this is a five-week series, I'm going to give you five statements about money that are true, that will undergird, and I believe change your life. And I'm really excited about this. I never have a problem with teaching about money. I love teaching about money because I know the power that the, that of God and what he can do through you with your money that can bless you and prosper you. This past year, my wife and I were able to give the amount of my first year's salary to this church already. Yeah, so what did I say, $30,000? Now listen, that, that does not mean I make $300,000 a year. So just let's get some clarity on that first. We were phenomenally blessed with a very unique investment, and God supernaturally supercharged that investment. Did not expect it when we got the money. We said, that's a simple solution. That was not us. That was God. We're not smart enough. We're not good enough. We're not talented enough. We're, that's just a blessing. So we just gave 10% of that, that blessing back to this house. And we did it with joy because God loves a cheerful giver. But what I'm trying to tell you today is as we start this journey, I believe this with all of my heart and I want you to hear me on this. God is about to change your life. I'm excited about this. I really am. 
Because we don't talk about this enough. Jesus talked about money all the time. 16 out of his 38 parables were about money and possessions or finance. 16 out of 30, that's 40% of Jesus' teaching was about money. 2,350 verses in the Bible deal with money. 2,350 verses in the Bible. There are 500 verses on prayer, 500 verses on faith. There are four times as much, almost five times as much verses on money. Do you think that God's trying to say something? He knows the money will be a chief rival in our heart for him. And what happens, unfortunately, for many of us is we stop trusting God and we start trusting money. So here we go. The truth about money, part one, you can't trust it. Just turn your neighbor, everybody, in all locations, just that you can't trust it. And then just go, mm-mm. Just make sure they got it. <laughs> Genesis chapter 47, I'm going to read a passage in just a moment. I didn't think this was about money, but it is about money. Um, I heard about a grandpa, though, that won a um, million dollars in the lottery. Grandpa won a million dollars in the lottery. The family was shaken. They were kind of shook up about it because they were like, grandpa's got a bad heart. But if we tell him and he falls, kills over dead of a heart attack. So they called their pastor and they said, Pastor, what should we do? Grandpa won a million dollars in the lottery. And they said, he said, oh, let me tell him. So the pastor went into the, uh, into the bedroom there where Grandpa was, just barely hanging on. And he said, Grandpa, I got news for you. You played the lottery a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you just won a million dollars. And by the way, what would you do with all that money? He said, oh, I'd give it all to the church. And the pastor fell over and died of a heart attack. I like that joke because I want just to clear the air. We're not interested in giving, having you give all your money to the church. We're interested in you having management and authority, according to God's word, over the possessions that God trusts you with. But the, but the foundation that we're laying today is this. You cannot trust money. This is the first series I've done on money since the pandemic started. Ironically, I was in a series on money when they closed the country down. I don't know if you remember that. I was doing a series called The Fool and His Money. I had preached on money every year of this church's life. It has been two and a half plus years since I've preached on money. I didn't feel it was appropriate during a global worldwide pandemic to preach about money. I kind of wish I had now. Because what's happened for the last two and a half years has been a disgrace. It's been a disgrace of mismanagement. Lies, deceit, mistrust, and hear this word, it's on purpose, manipulation. You've been manipulated. This country's been manipulated. We've been manipulated with money. Two and a half years ago, we got done preaching part three of that series, and everything changed. Doors were shut in this church. Doors were shut in your businesses. Mom and pop shops had to close up. Well, Amazon and, Meta and Facebook and all kinds of other big companies exploded in profits. Home Depot was open, church was closed. Liquor stores were open, church was closed. It was just a disgrace. And all of us kind of went with it real easily. And I was taken aback by it. Then I ran across this article because then we're now on the back end of all this stuff. And the truth has been coming out. I don't know if you're seeing what I'm seeing, but where the truth is coming out about all the lies that we were told. And, and it's not, this is not a political thing. This is not a left-right. This is a, now even the CDC is saying things. 
even the scientists who were involved in the decisions that were made are coming out and saying things. And then we're finding out that the, the vaccines weren't even tested properly. And all this stuff is starting to come out, which proves to us that our government seriously did a number on everybody. And now we're looking at it and we're saying, what are, where, where are we going to go from here? So an, an economist from Brown University, right down the road here from our North Attleboro location, Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, she wrote an article. It hit the pages in the Atlantic last week. The article's title, I'm going to put it up on the screen here, is Let's Declare a Pandemic Amnesty. Let's declare a pandemic amnesty. Let's focus on the future and fix the problems we still need to solve. This is a Brown University economist. And the article's premise is simply this. Yes, the government messed up your life for two and a half years. But can we just call a truce? It didn't go over well. <laughs> it kind of exploded all over the internet. I mean, you may have read it. Some of you are nodding your heads as I just shared that picture. It was not well received. Too many people paid too high a price for what just happened. Too many business owners lost their businesses. Too many children and grandchildren watched parents and grandparents die alone. We have an elder in this church, did not see his mother for the last three months of her life because of these rules. And then we watched as they told us not to go to beaches or public parks. As they told us to mask up, wear two masks, heck, wear three masks. And then all the scientists now are starting to confess that that was also manipulated data to control. We saw civil liberty after civil liberty come crashing down. And the country that we used to sing was the land of the free and the home of the brave. And when I watched it all take place, at first I was like, yeah, two weeks to slow the spread. What a laugh that was, by the way. And then I watched just about three weeks after that, I said, something's up. And I started to wonder, why weren't people starting to get a little bit more upset about this like I was? And I realized it was a very simple formula from our federal government. It was a very simple formula. Here it was. Are you ready for it? It's going to pinch a little bit. But you know what they did to keep you quiet? They gave you money. And they gave you money weekly. And they gave businesses money. And they kept giving you money. And kept giving you money. And kept giving. And, and they just turned the printers on in Washington and sent you money to shut you up. What I mean by that is they manipulated you. They manipulated you through this device. Can I tell you that this is nothing new for governments and authoritarians? To offer you free things free money, free whatever for your loyalty and for your observance to their rules. They, they uh, sent checks out every week, PPP loans to businesses. The government turned on the money printers and then suddenly nobody cared that their liberties were gone and then you couldn't go to the beach and you couldn't go to the park and you couldn't go to the gym. So what did you do? You got on your phone, you opened up a Robin Hood account and you bought yourself some Dogecoin. And that thing, which is a worthless thing, just went through the roof. And everybody thought, okay, here we go. Here's my future. Look at this. Woohoo! it's fun. Man, we were, we were manipulated tremendously. Now here we are two and a half years later, and the chickens have come home to roost. Now we got sky-high inflation, higher inflation than they're actually even telling us because they keep gas and food prices out of the numbers. 
It's at like 12 or something percent over the last two years. You got to add up, by the way, the last two years, not just the last month, the last two years of inflation. The last month, the index was 8% higher than what you're paying, but you got to add that to the 5 or 6% a year ago this month. And so right now, on average, at t- from 2020 to 2022, you're paying about 15 to 16% higher for everything in your life. I was at the grocery store. My, my wife and I were having people over the other day. She sent me to the grocery store. Go get some things for, for some chips and dips. And I love me some Tostitos chips with a touch of lime. How many love those? Th- I lo- Don't give me regular Tostitos chips. It's got to have just a touch of lime. It's a shot straight to my heart. Put that in an IV and soak it up in my veins. I love that stuff. So I was going to the grocery store and I was looking and I remember from the last time that I went shopping for my wife was in 2020. Just kidding. But maybe the last time that I ever looked for Tostitos chips with a touch of lime was 2020. I went up to the store. I remember, oh, those are $3.29 a bag because they used to, you know how they do that? Printed $3.29 a bag. $6.99. I'm like, Jesus, take the wheel. This, this cannot be. And, and so times are tough. You know, there's a moment in the scriptures where the people of Israel are enslaved to the Egyptians, and then God starts to do something with Moses. You know this story? And he says, go let my people go. Go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And, go, and Moses goes and says, let my people go. We're going to go worship God in the wilderness. We're going to go and throw a, we're gonna go and throw a festival in the wilderness to our God. And the first response of, Mo, of Pharaoh is, who is the Lord? I don't know who you're talking about. I'm the God of this world. And then he says, stop giving me these empty phrases. And then he tells the the slave masters, you're going to tell them they're going to start making bricks without straw. And then they did that. They enforced this rule. They had to make bricks without straw. The Israelites had to go scrounge around for a straw. And they were suddenly forced, listen to this line, they were suddenly forced to do the, the same amount with less. That's the kind of a euphemism of where we are. You got to do the same amount, but with less. And some of you might be thinking, well, what do I do here? I, I don't understand. And some of you might be tempted to cut things off that you shouldn't cut off. Or some of you are struggling so much that you're just living paycheck to paycheck. And how many know some of you are in that place where there's a whole lot of month left to your money? And it's tough. And you're wondering, where's God? What's going to happen? Am I going to be able to ever retire? What is going to happen to my family, my life? I've, I've never seen In my life, and I mean this, I'm 46 years old. I've never seen a two-year period of more disgraceful policies in our country that have hurt more people financially. So this message series is kind of overdue because it's hurting you. And so we're going to go to chapter 47 of Genesis, and I had no idea that this was anything about money. It's a weird passage because we got to ask ourselves, how did... How did Israel get enslaved to Pharaoh in the first place? Where did this idea of enslaving the people come from? And then the Lord directed me to Genesis chapter 47. And I want you to stand with me at all of our locations, and we're going to read together this passage of Scripture, beginning in verse 13. Here's what it says. Now there was no food in all the land for the famine. Somebody say famine. The famine was very severe so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they brought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians 
came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, give me your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for livestock if your money is gone. So they bought, brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock, listen to this, that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. That, I'm sorry, that all of our money is spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Now listen to this. This is the people talking to the governmental leader. Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests did he not buy. Skip down to verse 23. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be yours as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your households and your little ones. And they said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants, and some, texts, some translations say slaves, to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt and it stands to this day that the Pharaoh should have the fifth. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that our hearts will be open to your word like, Father, if I could ask, like never before. And that we will hear what you have to say about finances, about money, about our possessions. We pray the Lord's Prayer in that sense, Lord. Give us this day our daily bread. Help us to hear your voice and see Jesus. In his mighty name we pray and everybody said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a seat. So this is a difficult passage in the Bible to read. I don't know if you take it as difficult as I do, but what happens essentially is in three years or you could say almost two and a half years, the people of Egypt, and I mean the Egyptians now, the Egyptians, go from land-owning private citizens to slaves of Pharaoh. That's kind of an ironic time frame. From land-owning individual people to slaves of Pharaoh. And by the way, did you pick it up at the end? They said, we're happy about it. We're glad to do it. Thank you. You saved our lives. And, and, and did you notice there was a name in the story that kind of bugged me? I don't know if it bugged you. The name was Joseph. Joseph was the 
the prime minister of Egypt, how did he get there? He, he, he was sent into slavery by his brothers after being betrayed, remember? And then he's sold into slavery, and in Potiphar's house, he's accused of raping Potiphar's wife. He goes to prison wrongly. He spends two years in the prison, and then he interprets dreams for the cupbearer and the chief baker of the king, of Pharaoh. And then uh, two years go by, and then he's elevated because he interprets Pharaoh's dream of seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. And all this goes out, and then Pharaoh hears Joseph's wisdom and says, this guy's got the spirit of God on him. Let's put him in a position to orchestrate all of this so that we will be able to get through this next 14-year season with, with, with everything intact. And when we pick up the story here in Genesis chapter 47, we're seeing a side of Joseph that I don't know about you, but I'm not really fond of. He's buying up the land of the people. He's buying up their livestock, and then he buys up the bodies. And the very thing that becomes an instrument of dominion for Pharaoh in Moses' generation was initiated by some of the policies that Joseph administrated. This is kind of nuts. You say, how am I supposed to reconcile this? Well, I, I will reconcile it with one little contextual insight in that Pharaoh only asked for 20% of the land's increase. And I guess comparatively to other ancient world uh, feudal systems, that was relatively low. But other than that, Pharaoh's pretty much set up to be God of the country. How many know that our presidents and the pre people who run for president tend to get a little bit of a God-like complex? It's a voting week today, Tuesday. You gotta get to the polls and vote. Please vote, but vote for someone who has some humility. Vote for somebody who thinks that God's way, not our way, is the right way. Amen, somebody? You're not, you need to do that. But I'm just, I'm just trying to say, we, we, we've got a, a, a country now that is almost uh, beholden to the presidency so badly that we, absol we absolutely think that the guy is going to solve all our problems, and he never does. What we do is we exchange one flawed, failed sinner for another flawed, failed sinner, and it's just a D or an R. It's the same result every time. We need to turn our eyes not to them, but to Jesus Christ, who knows what he's doing with us. We're his people. So get yourself to the polls and vote for the most humble, most godly candidate that you can find. And I know you're going to have to do some research to figure that one out. But there's a, what happens in, what happens in Egypt to make all this happen? A famine. Write this down so I know you're getting this. Famines happen. Um, crises happen. Just because your financial time is good now doesn't mean it's going to be good in two years. Just because the financial time, the beginning of the pandemic was good, doesn't mean it's going to be good afterwards. I have discussed this ad nauseum on my channel on YouTube, and I have talked about this repeatedly for your good, that you cannot pump all this money into the economic system that is not real money and then not pay for it in due, in due season. You can't do it. So we're paying the price now. And I believe that we can thrive and survive if we understand that God is in charge and not government, and then apply our hearts to money the way God wants us to apply our hearts. But here's the deal. 
famines happen. I'm not here to bemoan anymore how it happened. I'm not here to uh, paint you a better uh, a picture that's not going to happen. I'm not going to promise you that nothing's going to ever go wrong in life in the future. I'm not going to promise you that this will never happen again. Famines happen. By the way, we've been through financial downturns before. We've been through recessions before. They happen about every eight years. There's nothing you can do to stop them. And here's the deal about the famine. There were two famines in Egypt, even before in the land, even before this moment. The first one happens with Abraham. And it says in Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, there was a famine in the land. And what did Abraham do? Abram at this time. Abram went down to where? To Egypt. He went down. He said, look, there's a famine in the land. I'm going to go where the going's good. And something terrible happens. He gets on the way to Egypt and he says to Sarah, his wife, he says, look, you're very beautiful. And if they see you, they're going to kill me and take you. So he says, why don't you pose as my sister, and that way they'll treat me good because of you. Man, what a godly man Abram was. (laughs) What I'm trying to say is, he does not handle the famine well. He's ready to abandon his marriage over the famine. I wonder who needed to hear that. It was the wrong decision. Uh, By the way, he escapes because God's hand of protection is upon him, and and God doesn't even let Abram's stupid decisions destroy him. How many are glad about that? God didn't let our stupid decisions destroy him. So God saves him from Pharaoh's hand there. But but then in the next generation, in Isaac's generation, look at it in Genesis chapter 26, there was a famine in the land. This is the second famine in the land. Besides the former famine in the days of Abram, and Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, and look what it says, and the Lord, now, now this is good because uh, the Lord knew what his daddy did and wasn't going to let him do the same thing. So he steps up and the Lord says, says this, the Lord appeared to him and said, don't go down to Egypt. I know that's what your dad did. I know that's what you're thinking, but it's a stupid idea. He said, you stay and dwell in the land and I tell you, verse three, sojourn in this land and look at this promise and I will be with you and will bless you. So Abraham experiences the famine and fails, and it almost cost him his marriage. Isaac experiences a famine, and God steps up and says, no, 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 trust me. Don't do what your dad did. Let me be with you and sustain you. And by the way, Isaac is abundantly blessed as he trusts God. Here's what I want you to write down, because I want to paint a picture for you. When famine happens, our trust is being tested. Right now, you know, you don't, you don't get tested when you can pay all your bills and you've got plenty of money left over. I just want to let you know that is not a testing season. You're tested when you're in dire straits. When things happen against your, that are outside of your control and you don't know how you're going to make ends meet and you don't know what you're going to do and everything looks like it's collapsing around you. This is a test. This is only a test. All right, is a test of your emergency trusting system. Where, where, where are you going to go right now? Where, who are you going to look to in the famine? And what we have here is a picture in the third famine of what the people of Egypt did when the famine hit. They don't turn to God. They don't turn to prayer. They turn to Pharaoh. And after seven years, by the way, seven years of abundance, and, and, and they had plenty. And they knew that seven years of famine were coming. You, you understand this, right? Let's get the context. 
that, that, that Joseph said, here's what's going to happen. Seven years of abundance and then seven years of famine are going to happen. They were given a heads up. How many of you would like a heads up as to when the stock market is going to crash? Right? They were given a heads up seven years. And so they had seven years to store up and to, and to save and to prepare. And they couldn't manage. And they ended up worse off. My point is sometimes nothing can stop the famine from coming. Nothing can stop the financial hardship from coming. But when it happens, your faith, your trust is being tested. And God wants to teach you some things about money. So let's take a look closer at this. Verse 13, it says, there was no food in the land. And by the way, I told you this earlier, that when the Lord directed me to Genesis 47 to start a series on money, I said, Lord, this passage isn't about money. And he said to me, oh yeah, read it. And so I read it. <laughs> look at this. In verse 14, and Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in exchange for the grain they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt, in the land of Canaan, the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food for why should we die? Because our money is gone. And I said, I'm sorry for questioning you, Lord. This is about money. It really is. I've never, I've never preached on this passage before. I've never even heard a preacher preach on this passage before. But it is about money. And the first thing that we have to see about money in this passage is this. Point number one, write this down. Money fails. And there's nothing you can do to stop it. It always ends up failing. It passes through your hand like grains of sand on the beach. And the tighter you squeeze, the faster it gets out. Money fails. I love the King James Version of Genesis 47, 15. This is where I got point one. When money failed. When. Jesus is talking about money in Luke chapter 16. And he talks about uh, a man with a lot of money. And before he knew it, he had no money. And then Jesus teaches about this man. And he says, listen to me. I tell you, make friends for yourselves here with your money. Because when your money fails, then you'll have friends in heaven. And the, verse, and the phrase is, when your money fails. He doesn't say, if your money fails. He says, when your money fails. So there's no such thing as having permanent funds. It's going to get scoffed up some way, somehow. Inflation, taxation, or recession, or depression. There's, a, there's just no, there's no stopping it. And we've got to know this if we're going to approach money from a biblical mindset. And, and in this passage here, we see here that, that Egypt, the leading superpower of the world, with a heads up about a seven-year recession or depression, still could not manage the money from the seven years of abundance. And it's just kind of crazy to think about that. We, we're all susceptible to this temptation. But, but, but listen, if the money failed there, the money is going to fail here. And money fails, money's going to fail in your life. Eventually, by the way, at the end of the age, and this is not in your notes, but at the end of the age, right before Jesus comes, the Bible talks about that there's going to be one world leader, there's going to be one world economy, and then there's going to be a mark that you got to take. Some people might call it some sort of passport 
to go buy and sell. Look at it, Revelation chapter 13. It says it's about the dictator beast. He causes both small and great, rich and poor, both free and slave to be marked on the right hand of the forehead so that, what? No one can, what? Buy or sell unless he has the mark. How is the end times antichrist world leader going to control the world? Money. You gotta get your heart right about this now. Because I know I'm talking to some people, you are absolutely convinced that there's a pre-trib rapture and you're not gonna have to deal with this stuff. But what if you're wrong? What if we're here when Mr. Antichrist comes? He's going to do it. And I saw it, and you should have seen it too, that COVID was the test case for it. They call for passports on the vaccine in a hot second. And I was shocked at the silence of the preachers on TV and on YouTube about this very issue. It's as if the scriptures are coming to pass very shadowy right now, eventually in reality, and hardly anybody said anything to protect God's people. Not in his church, my friend. We'll call them out and we'll tell you the truth in Jesus' name. But that's where it's going. That's where, it's as clear as day. It's kind of exciting, though, to think about this, isn't it? Like these passages we used to read in, our, in my Sunday school class, we said, that never happened. Now we're like, oh my goodness, it is happening. Jesus is around the corner, friends. Get your heart right about money. This is not a time to put your faith in money. We'll talk about how we do that in the next four weeks. I'm laying the groundwork. Luke chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus says, no servant can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then notice the phrase, just to make sure we're getting it, he says this, you cannot serve God and money. If you got your notes out, underline serve. Because serve is a worship word. It's a worship word. You're either gonna worship God or you're gonna worship money. And when you worship money, just remember I told you, it fails. The good news is, God never fails. Right, well, look at this next passage, Proverbs 23, verse five. Cast but a glance at riches, and they are, they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like the eagle. In this series, we're going to talk about how you tell your money where, you, where to go so that you're not wondering where it went. Because that's what money does. It just kind of goes away before you know it. And you wonder, what happened? Money happened. Point number two. When money fails, I'll be tempted to find assurance anywhere. When money fails, I'll look to almost anybody or anything to give me what money promises me. When mo and I almost wanted to call point two this. When money fails, watch out. So maybe just in the margins of your notes, write that down, would you? Watch out. <laughs> be be because when the money's low, that's, again, that's where the test comes from. That's where the test happens. And, and you're gonna be tempted to do things that are against God's word for your life. All in pursuit of money. 
and you'll be tempted to find assurance anywhere. That's what happens with the people of Egypt. This is how the system, this is how the system of slavery in the Bible gets started. It's just kind of amazing to me. And this slavery will come back to haunt the Israelites in the next in the, in the future generation. But this is how it starts. So look what it says here in verse 16. And Joseph answered, give your livestock and I'll give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money's gone. So they bought, brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them food. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. They gave up all their livestock. They gave up all their cows, all their horses. It's illicit there. They gave up their flocks, the horses, the herds, the donkeys. They gave them all up. Now, I was looking at that list, and I was just doing a little bit of digging in my own mind, and I thought to myself, they could have eaten the cows. Am I talking to anybody who's ever tasted ribeye? And on the eighth day, God created filet mignon. Come on, somebody. <laughs> you, want, you want to know what happened? You want a little contextual insight into here? In Egypt, they worshiped the cow. They worshiped it as a god. Did you know that? That's why when Moses comes in with the 10 plagues, one of the 10 plagues was a plague on the cattle. In fact, every one of the 10 plagues to break Israel free from Egypt was a direct frontal assault on all the things that the Egyptians worshiped as God. They worshiped the sun, so God gave them days of darkness. They worshiped the ground, so God made locusts come out from the dust. They worshiped the Nile, so God turned it into blood. They worshiped frogs, so God flooded all their homes with frogs. Did you know that? They worshiped the cow. They, they were so messed up in their theology that they made something in their life that they could have used as sacred, and they ended up starving. That's the high cost, by the way, of idolatry and bad theology. When you make something God to you, when you make something that's not God, God, you are setting yourself up for slavery. And this can be applied to anything, including money. If you make money your God, you will be a slave to your job and your time at the job and the promotions that you could get in your job. And you'll never see your kids and you'll never be at home and your marriage will fall apart. But you've got what you want, the God of success. Or if you make someone else your God, a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a wife or a husband, and you'll serve them and you'll never come to church because they don't want to go to church and you'll serve them and of God. Watch out for the things that you set up as God. That They make terrible gods. There's only one God who's good at being God. This is the, but this is what they did. They gave up everything. And by the way, they gave up their horses. That's their industry. That's their small business. That's their mom and pop shop. Here, take it all. Just give us what we need to sustain us. Be careful when money fails. You'll look for assurances anywhere. And look at verse 18. It gets worse. And when that year was ended... They came to him the following year and said to him, we will not hide that our money's spent, the hers are yours. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Look at verse 19, the saddest verse in the whole text. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land, by us? <laughs> 
I don't know, but whenever I read that text, I get a little choked up. By our bodies and our land, and we will be servants to Pharaoh and give us seed that we may live and not die. Notice, by the way, that in the first year, it was Joseph who suggested they sell. This year, they come back and it's them suggesting to sell. What's happened? They're getting conditioned. They're getting trained. This is what you do. You keep giving stuff to Pharaoh. You keep giving stuff to Pharaoh. You keep giving up your rights. You keep giving up your liberties. You keep giving up your independence. You keep giving up your freedoms. Because why? Because they said they'll take care of us. My God. How appropriate this text is for where we are today. And I don't know if you also noticed... They had two bargaining chips left, didn't they? They said, we'll give you our land and our bodies. If Rules of negotiation. If you got two things left, offer one. You know, it doesn't, doesn't take rocket scientists to come up with this stuff. Like I said, I'm not that smart. And even I said it. I said, why not first do the land? <laughs> and then if all hell breaks loose again, then well, then we'll talk about our bodies. Do you know why? I know exactly why. And this is a very important point. The enemy specializes in fear. And he loves to give us worst case scenario up front. Write this down. The enemy uses fear to convince us that God won't provide for us. He specializes in worst case scenario. You might as well just give it all up right now. You might as well just surrender. Some of you, the devil's coming at you. You might as well just stop going to church. It's not working. Look at what's happened in your life since you started. No, no, no. You don't want to trust God with money. No, no, no. Don't trust God. You got to take care of yourself. You got to watch out for number one. Watch out for the worst case scenario. The devil loves to use worst case scenario. I got, I got a question for you. Yes, times are tough. Yes, inflation is high. Yes, your month is very messy with your money. But I got a question for you. And tell me this out loud at all of our locations. Um, did you have something to eat today? You got clothes on your back. now, And thank God for that. Amen. Look, it might not be as good as it was but it's not as bad as we think. Don't let the devil tell you what it's gonna be before you sell yourself out to his fear and manipulative tax, uh, tactics. Write this down too. When money is tight, I'm taking a test. I'm, I'm taking a test. I'm taking a test in life. The Lord's tested my spirit, tested my mind, tested my, 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 my heart. Now's not a time to let the devil do the speaking. Now's a time to let God do the speaking in my life. I've been doing this a long time. I, I've been doing preaching a long time. I, I preached through the 2008 financial crisis. I preached through it. it, is, it's, it they come and they go. And uh, I'll never forget... 
one of the advisors for one of the presidential candidates that year, because it was a presidential election, I'll never forget the filth that came out of his mouth one time. And he said, in the midst of that financial crisis, he said, as his man was running for president, he said, uh, we believe that we should never let a crisis go to waste. I was, I was sickened when I heard that. I said, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. You're telling me that you see all these people losing their jobs in their homes and you see an opportunity for power? That's a sick statement. And you gotta watch out. Again, this is why I say you gotta watch out for what you're being told, what you're hearing on the news, and who's promising you what. Because this is how they create a dependency mentality. And before you know it, your trust is in the government and not in God. You gotta stop letting the devil speak and start letting God speak. Jesus said, this is how I want you to pray. Matthew 6, 11, give us this day our daily bread. God, I'm, I've got, I'm good today. Thank you, God. I got food in my stomach. I got clothes on my back. Don't tell me, devil, about tomorrow. I'm not worried about tomorrow. The, the, the Lord told me that I shouldn't worry about tomorrow. Oh, the devil loves to talk about tomorrow. God loves to talk about today. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Today is the day of salvation. Matthew chapter 6, 34 says, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you? You of little faith. He's got you. God's got you. Psalm 37, 25, I've been young, I've been old, and I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. You gotta start letting God speak over your life before you listen to the lies of the enemy. And he'll put on a suit and he'll put on a tie and he'll promise you the world, but in the end, he'll fail you because he makes a terrible God. Only God is good at being God. Here's point number three, and lastly, money fails, but a connection to Christ sustains me in every season. So, we read... Genesis chapter 47, verses 13 to about 25, 26. I didn't tell you what happened just before then. What happened just before then is Joseph had his father show up in front of Pharaoh. You remember this re reconciliation that went down between Joseph and his brothers? He put them, he put them through a test. This is, this is for another message, but I'll just really summarize it real quick. Remember, they had betrayed him. They had sold him into slavery. So when they come asking for bread, Joseph doesn't just immediately receive them. He wants to know, have you repented for what you did? And they don't even know it's him. So he puts them through this little test, and he holds back one of the brothers and sends them back to dad. And he wants to know if they're so sorry about what they did to Joseph in the first place that they're willing to change how they treat their other younger brother. He wants to know if their hearts changed. And a beautiful moment breaks down because Judah says, you know what, just take me and let my younger brother go because if my father loses him, he'll, he'll go down to the grave in, in, in disgrace. And at that moment, Joseph realizes that they repented and the hearts were right and they're reconciled. And the scripture says that they wept so hard it resonated into the palace of Pharaoh. So... Right before the famine starts to break out, or right in the beginning of the famine, Joseph has his, his, brother, his father, Jacob, and his brothers come before him. And he says, these are my brothers, this is my father, and, Joseph, and they bless Pharaoh, and Pharaoh blesses them. And look what happens 
through their connection to Joseph, it says, then, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, look at this, this is a beautiful moment. Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Did you see what happened? Because they had, listen to this, because they had a reconciled relationship with Joseph, they had access to the privileges of the palace. And on the backside of that famine passage that we just talked about where the Egyptians were selling everything off to Pharaoh for slavery, they end up slaves. Look what it says in verse 27 of the same chapter. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained, somebody say gained. They gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. I want you to see the picture so that we're not missing it. Joseph, their connection with Joseph through reconciliation and repentance makes them right with the guy who had the power to make sure that they were financially covered in the midst of a famine that was devastating everybody else. And if you're not aware of this, Joseph's story is a picture of Jesus' story yet to come. Because Joseph will be was betrayed by his brothers. Jesus was betrayed by his brother Judas. And Joseph was cast into a pit of death. And Jesus was cast into a pit of death at the grave after he died on the cross. And Joseph was raised from the, from the pit all the way up to the right-hand side of Pharaoh, who was considered God in the ancient world. And Jesus Christ, our Lord, was raised from that grave and was seated at the right-hand side of God the Father. And he sits there evermore to make intercession for you and for me. We've got a Joseph in the heavenly places. And he's got his eyes on his people. And so we don't look to government as if government's got the answer. And we don't look to money as if money is our foundation. We know who holds us in the palm of his hand. And he's got us and tomorrow in there as well. And we've got nothing to worry about. Money fails, but Jesus never does. And I want to talk about this last thing, getting the connection to Christ that you need. Because I just want to make sure we're clear about how this works. You gotta repent and trust him. You gotta remember that you're his family. And you gotta receive the Father as your provider. That's how it works. That's the foundation. We're laying a foundation. I got four more messages. I can't wait to get this stuff out to you. I am so excited for this series. Some of your lives are going to totally change in the next five weeks. I'm telling you. But it starts here. It starts here. Repent and trust in Jesus. Remember that through that repentance, you are now part of his family and receive the Father as your provider. And some of you need to do that today.